Good morning, brothers. So good to see you today. I'm a little under the weather, so forgive me if there's a D on the end of every word I say today. But I'm so glad to be here with you. So glad to be here with you. As Lon said, if you don't have a church home, or if this is your church home, but you never come to these special Advent services we have, I highly encourage you to. They're so joyful, so hope-filled, and so beautifully done. Uh, if you missed this past Sunday evening, we had our Baroque concert. A lot of our young adults didn't know what Baroque meant. They thought it was a barbecue concert. No barbecue. We had wassail. No barbecue. But it was a, a beautiful service. That's online if you can go back and listen to it. And this coming uh, Sunday evening, we have our annual Festival of Carols. It's so much fun for uh, the whole family. It's going to be beautiful. We hope you can make it. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. We're going to read through chapter 3, verse 5. There's two small paragraphs in this section of Scripture. We're going to focus more so on that first paragraph, the tail end of chapter 2, but we'll, we'll briefly touch those first five verses in chapter 3 as well. As you're turning there, uh, just a way of reminder. You know, Paul is writing this letter to encourage these young Christians in the faith and to help them get thinking rightly about that second coming of the Lord Jesus because the point is, if you think right, you live right. And these early Christians, they were worried that they had missed that second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or they may have even been worried that it wasn't going to happen at all. And so Paul assures them, no, it's going to happen, and no, you haven't missed it, because two things need to happen. First, there's that great rebellion, then the revealing of that man of lawlessness, that, that Antichrist. Now, if you're here last week, we, we talked about some pretty dark stuff. Paul talked about dark stuff there in the beginning of chapter 2. But in the midst of those dark things, Paul just laced it with Christian hope, assuring us that in spite of all the evil in the world, God is in control, and God has won and will ultimately win in the Lord Jesus Christ. In our passage today, he shows us how to apply all of that. He says, as we live in light of that second coming, what are we to do in the meantime? And that's what he says in our passage. So let's read it together, starting at verse 13. Hear the word of God. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Chapter 3, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we might be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to love, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my brothers. 
And together we are so grateful for this season that you bless us with every year that we might remember and rejoice in that first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and look eagerly to that great day to come when he returns and makes all things new. We pray as we look to your word this morning that you would not only inform us but transform us by the power of your spirit. Guide us and keep us in this endeavor. We love you, Father, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, John Stott uh, comments in his commentary on this letter that stability, just good old-fashioned stability, is the most coveted quality in every sphere of human life. And I think we would probably agree with him. I mean, I know that I, for one, would love a semblance of economic stability. I know that you would, too. I know that we would all value stability in our government and in our country. I know we're all praying for civic stability with election season right around the corner. Stability is a good thing. We long for stability. We long for stability in our homes, for stability in our families. We want our children to be stable. We want to be stable both mentally and just have our lives together, and we certainly admire those who do have stable lives. Stability is a good thing. The Bible talks a lot about Christian stability, and Paul talks a lot about stability in his letters to the Thessalonians. So first off, in the first letter he wrote, Paul gave thanks to God because that, those early Christians were standing firm in the Lord. He praised the Lord for that because there was Christian stability in their midst. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 8. Last week, Paul urged them not to become easily unsettled, instable. We saw that in verse 2. And in this passage, he actually exhorts them, commands us to stand firm. We see that in verse 15. So Paul thinks much of Christian stability, and he wants us to, he urges us to maintain Christian stability because the truth is there are many headwinds in this life that threaten it, right? And we talked a lot about those headwinds last week, those three major headwinds that Christians experience in this life that threaten our stability, persecution, false teaching, and temptation. Those are those three major headwinds that he's been talking about really throughout both of these letters, particularly the second one. And we also saw last week that that force behind those great headwinds is none other than Satan himself. And there is a time coming when those headwinds will culminate into an unprecedented time of evil. In fact, that evil is already present in seed form. We live in an age of lawlessness. And so even though we have received that great assurance that God is in control of all things, in spite of all the evil in the world and all the chaos in the world, God is in control and he wins in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have every reason to sing joy to the world because of that. Paul also understands that we're often weak in faith and we have the temptation to be shaken in this, in this life. And so his desire for us is to be stable. And that's our desire too, is it not? To be stable. Not just a stable economy or anything like that, but for stable stability in our faith. We long for that. We don't want to be a, you know, a reed shaken by the wind. Our desire is to be set upon a rock, to be immovable. And the reality is, a lot of the times, that just seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? Considering all the trials and tribulations we face. Well, this passage tells us not only is it possible, it shows us how we can maintain Christian stability in our faith. There's two things. Hold on and pray. Those are the two major pillars of Christian stability that Paul gives us as we wait for that great day to come. Hold on and pray. Let's look at the first one. In verses 13 through 17, Paul says we are to stand firm by holding on. He, he 
explicitly says this in verse 15, where he says, so then, brothers. This comes on the heels of what he had just said in the previous passage we looked at last week. So then, brothers, in light of all the things I just told you, in light of that age of lawlessness, and in light of this great rebellion coming and the Antichrist and all of that, in light of those things, brothers, stand firm by holding on. There is so much that we could talk about in these five verses alone. I will never get to it. But there's three things I want to make sure that we pull out. All right, in this first pillar, there's three things. There's an assurance. There's the exhortation. And then there's a benediction, a promise. Okay, so let's just look at these individually very quickly. First off, Paul gives us the assurance that we need in verses 13 through 14. After studying these two letters with you guys these, uh, for this whole semester, I got to say, I think these two verses are my favorite, right? Because he just chalks it filled with assurance. I mean, if you look at his line of thought in these five verses, it's kind of cool. Paul says, what you need, Christian, more than anything else is Christian stability. You need to stand firm. And this is how you stand firm. You hold on. But before he tells us how to hold on, that is what we must do in this life, he first reminds us of what God has already done for our sakes. So he's, he's kind of uh, establishing us in a sense of assurance in which we are able to live obediently and by faith. It's similar to what he does in his letter to the Ephesians, one of my favorites. As you know, in those first three chapters, we've studied this before, in those first three chapters, he gives us amazing doctrine and theology reminding us of what is true of God, and that serves as the basis for the ethical exhortations he gives us in chapters 4 through 6. But that's similar to what he's doing right here. From the very get-go, Paul wants us to understand that his confidence in our Christian stability as the church is due primarily to the stability of God's loving purposes for us. That's the main thing that he wants us to know before he commands us to do anything. He says it's only because of God's steadfastness that the people of God can be steadfast too. Now, he tells us some remarkable things in verses 13 through 14. Remarkable things. It's actually just one giant sentence of assurance, but he, we break it up in two verses. And in each of these verses, he tells us something about God's action, then after God's action, he shows us the means by which God accomplishes that action. And then he tells us the purpose of that action. All meant for your comfort this morning as we wait for that great day to come. So let's just look at him briefly. Verse 13, the first thing that he says is that God chose you, brothers, from the beginning. In the ESV, it says first fruits. But that word for first fruits, every other time that Paul uses it in the Greek is translated beginning. Most scholars say that's the better translation. So he says, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through the Spirit and belief in the truth. Three things. First off, there's God's action. God chose you from the beginning. That's what Paul wants you to know. That his ground of confidence, that God's people will withstand the evil in this world, the machinations of evil in this world, deception from the evil one, temptation, and all the rest is God's sovereign choice of his people. This is the same point that he makes in Ephesians 1 verse 4, where Paul tells us that God has chose us, as Mike prayed earlier, before the foundations of the world. He chose us before atoms were formed, before stars were set in place, before a thought 
came through your mind before you did anything, God set his affections upon you. That's what Paul says. God chose us. Now we might say, how do I know I've been chosen? Well, I would say to you, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Well, guess what? You're chosen. Right? Because the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, that God's sovereign election in eternity past is made manifest in the present through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't conjure up faith on our own. That is a gift to us, Paul tells us in Ephesians, from God. And we know that whoever God chooses, the Bible tells us, can never, ever be snatched from his hands. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us, I will not lose not one that the Father has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Which is, of course, what Paul has been talking about in chapter 2. Paul wants us to know that his confidence is in his Father's election of his people. Now, why did he choose us? Paul tells us, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Here's the purpose, to be saved. We know that, but don't think past that too quickly. Just think about what that means. Paul is comforting the church by setting the church in contrast to what's happening to the non-believing world. Remember last week, we saw in verse 10 and verse 12, in contrast to those who are perishing in verse 10 and to those who will be condemned in verse 12, God has chosen to save you. And we know that we're not better than anybody, but God has set his affections upon us before the foundation of the world to save us. And this salvation is in toto. He saves us from death and saves us for life to deliver us from judgment, as Paul has said elsewhere, to make us righteous in Christ, to reconcile us to himself, and to one day soon bring us into full resurrection health. That is God's purpose for you, brothers, to save you. And there's not one thing in this world that could ever thwart God's purposes for you. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8. There's not one thing in this world, in heaven or hell, or even you, that could separate you from the love of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he will, in assurance, he will bring about a completion to the good work in which he has started in you. God has chosen you to be saved through the work of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Spirit? The third person of the Trinity, the down payment of new creation, the one who indwells and transforms God's people, who awakens us to the truth of the gospel and grace, causes the gospel to take root in our hearts and to set us apart for his specific and holy use. Do you see what Paul is doing? There's a Trinitarian formula here. He is assuring you that God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit has set his affection upon you, 100% committed to your holiness and to bringing you home. And so just think about what Paul is saying, what might have been in the minds of these early believers. Paul says, I know that you're shaky, and I know full well what I just told you about the end times might cause you further shakiness when we're talking about the Antichrist and all that type of stuff. But, but brothers and sisters, if you get a hold of this, if you get a hold of this, if you wrap your mind around it, that God has chosen you before the foundations of the world to be saved through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you get your mind around that, you're going to be immovable. You're going to be immovable. Because think about it, your salvation has very little to do with you. It goes well before 
you, whenever you made a decision, whether if you heard a Billy Graham concert on the radio or you sat down with your college pastor at the lunch table or your parents catechized you in the faith, it, it happened well before them, before Adams were formed, when God in his gracious initiative set his affections down upon you. Paul's confidence, our confidence, is not in ourselves, but it's in the God who chose us. That's what Paul says. Now, if that wasn't enough, he goes on into verse 14 to tell us something that goes hand in hand with verse 13. Verse 14, he says, God called you also through the gospel to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul proceeds from God's sovereign choice in eternity past to the historical call of faith in the present. The means by which God brings about your salvation is through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, a little side note. This means then that election, far from undermining evangelism, actually enhances evangelism, right? Because God chose, preordained the proclamation of the gospel and evangelism to be the mechanism by which he fulfills his will. That is why Paul, in one breath, can praise God for his sovereignty, for the doctrine of predestination for election, and also say things like how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Right? And why does he do this? The purpose, so that we might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That glory to be revealed at the parousia, the great day to come, when Christ gathers us up, as he says in, earlier in chapter 2, and transforms us in the twinkling of an eye to be little Christs ourselves. And again, Paul is making a contrast to these believers. Hey, those folks in the world who have rejected the truth, they're perishing. Their destiny is hell. But you, church, who have been chosen by the Lord God to be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, your eternal destiny is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so do you see what Paul is saying, us, saying to us as shaky people in this life? Paul has just saying in eternity past, God has chosen us to be saved apart from our own doing. He has called us in time to hear and to respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sanctified by his spirit, and has given us the eternal destiny of glory to come. His mind just swept from eternity past to eternity future for your comfort. Because in that assurance, there is absolutely no room for instability. Because this is what Paul is saying to every single one of us in this room who are Christians. You are safe. Let Satan mount his most fiercest attack against the feeblest of saints. Let hell break loose on this world. You are safe because you are set and the eternal purposes of God. That's the assurance that Paul gives us this morning. Then in verse 15, he actually then gives us the exhortation. In verse 15, he is asking and answering the question, in light of such assurance, what do we do now? And this is actually, I think, a common temptation we as Christians um, experience, at least one that I, I sometimes experience and wrestle with. In light of such great sovereign power and amazing assurance that, that God gives us in his word, we have the temptation to think, okay, well, God has done everything. I'm just going to sit back, kick my feet up, just ride this puppy out. I mean, I mean that's just kind of the, the normal temptation. I mean, that's a rational thought for a fallen mind. But notice what Paul says in verse 15. 
absorb what he's saying here. He says, far from justifying spiritual laziness, this assurance is the very basis which urges us to further obedience and standing firm in the Lord. So it's kind of like World War II. I've been reading a lot of World War II books. That's on my Christmas wish list, in case you were wondering. But in World War II, at D-Day, when the Allies won, every single major world leader knew that the war in Europe was over. It was that decisive of a victory. The soldiers pretty much knew that as well. But what did those soldiers not do? They did not lay down their arms. They didn't say, well, this thing's over. They didn't do that. What did they do? They pressed on all the harder because they had won. They pressed on from victory. And similarly, that's what Paul is saying here. As Christians, we fight and stand firm, not for victory, but we're fighting and standing from from victory. We're standing firm and fighting, not to win, but because we know that we have already won in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the full manifestation of believing in that victory, resting in that victory, and being transformed by that victory is that we're holding on, is what Paul says. So the question is, what is it that we're supposed to be holding on to? Well, Paul tells us in verse 15, he says, hold on to the apostolic traditions, which every scholar tells us are the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Paul is saying, hey, we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sound. You are secured in him. So hold on tightly to the gospel of Jesus. Hold on to it and keep holding on to it. In fact, the words that he gives us in Greek is like a death grip. It's how I respond to whenever I drive with my wife. There's a, there's, there's a palm print on the console. Wear a helmet just to be safe. That's what Paul is saying. Hold on tightly to this gospel. Like your life depended on it. Why? Because there's so much deception in this world. There's so much temptation in this world. The evil one is afoot in this world. Hold on tightly to the gospel. It is a pillar of stability. Why? We said this last week. Because the Bible is God's living word, church. It's his breathed word. Every time you read it or hear it, it's as if God himself is speaking directly to you. It's all authoritative. It's necessary, sufficient. It's the bread by upon which we as God's people live. It's inerrant. It's perfectly suitable and profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness. Jesus tells us in John, abide in me, abide in my word, and I will abide in you. Do as I command so that my joy might be in you. So that you might be a tree planted by streams of living water, Psalm 1. So that you'll bear fruit in due season and have leaves that never wither. That is the picture of being immovable. He says, cling tightly to my word, which I've given to you. Now, how do we practically do that? One of the things that, a tool that I learned in my campus outreach days, which we actually stole from the navigators, is the word hand. It's a great memory tool, the word hand. So here's your hand, five words. Hear the word of God. Paul is not speaking to one person. He's speaking to a collection of believers. He's speaking to the church. So he's saying collectively hear the word of God. How do we collectively hear the word of God? Go to church. Sit under the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word regularly. Hear the word of God. But then also, secondly, read the word of God. Have your own devotional life. You don't have to read five chapters at a time. Read a passage at a time. But, but read God's word. Thirdly, study God's word, just like you're doing this morning. 
study God's word with other believers, other brothers, and, and try to figure out these things that Paul is saying. Fourthly, meditate on God's word. Apply it to yourself. Don't just try to become smarter Christians. Apply it. What does it mean that God has chosen me? How ought that to change the way I live today? Lastly, memorize God's word. I'm the worst memorizer on God's green earth. I can't do it, but I try to. But those are five methods. The word hand. And as you have those five things wrapped around God's word, you grip it tightly. And that's what Paul commands us to do so that we might be stable in this life. The second thing that he calls us to do to be stable, or actually rather, after that exhortation, he gives us the benediction, verses 16 through 17. Paul has to be the most loving pastor in the world. He just tells us to do something in verse 15, but prior to this command, remember he gave us the assurance, but now he reminds us of the promises and the blessings we have in the Lord. In verses 16 through 17, really the main point is Paul is saying it's not so much about us trusting our grip on God, but it's rather about trusting God's grip on us. He says, yes, study God's word, cling to it. But remember, your hope should not be in the strength of your grip, but it's rather in the strength of God's grip on you. Look what he says in verse 16. God the Father, God the Son. Again, beautiful Christology, just 20 years after the resurrection. God the Father, God the Son singularly loved you. That's a past action. This is something that has already taken place, referencing the hill of Calvary. God the Father, God the Son has already loved you, Christians, and has already gave you. Again, a past action word. Paul, in this little benediction, is reminding us of those blessings that are true of us as those who are in Jesus Christ. What has he given us? First off, he's given us eternal comfort. Sometimes we forget about the comfort we have in the Lord because we're shaky in this life, but, but it doesn't matter because this is true. We have been given eternal comfort. It's available to us. It cannot be shaken in this world, Paul says, because it's a comfort that is not of this world. In the Lord Jesus, we have been given eternal comfort. Secondly, we've been given good hope through grace. The gift of grace is not this mild optimism or this flimsy, whimsical hope, how we use the word hope here in the 21st century, but it's assurance of the things to come. He has given us eternal comfort and a good hope of the things to come. Verse 17, and he says, It's this same God who is with us now, strengthening us now, enabling us now to not only desire, but obey his word and to do the good work which he has set before us. This is Paul's way of saying that the sovereign Lord, who says to the winds of the world and the stormy seas to be still, and the one who snuffs out the very fires of hell by the breath of his nostrils is the one who is currently holding you in his grip and will continue to hold you in his grip until the day to come. Paul is reminding you that God is your stability. And the chef's kiss of this passage, what holds the assurance this exhortation and this promise together, Paul says, is the love of God. Verse 13. Brothers, be loved by God. He is saying, hey, you loved ones, the ones whom God has loved, let me tell you about your assurance. Verse 16. The Lord Jesus and God our Father has already loved you, which means he will continue to love you. And as you'll see next week, we'll go on to chapter 3 to talk about God's love too. The point is, behind God's election, behind his call, behind his gifts, behind his promises, behind his blessings is his love. The fact that God is love is the basis of all reality 
but his covenant love is the basis for your confidence and your stability. That's what Paul is saying. He has got you, church, and he will not let you go. So it's because of that with the psalmist, we can say in 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So Paul is saying in this world where there are evil things afoot, where there's greater evil coming, the first pillar of Christian stability is clinging fast to the word of God. Cling fast to that gospel. The second thing is to pray. We see this in chapters 3, verses 1 through 5. I love this quote. It's always been challenging to me. Oswald Chambers. He says, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. That's not what prayer is, as if there's something greater to come. He says, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greatest work. And I think we could say that's demonstrated in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the one who taught his disciples to pray. He is the one who healed people and cleansed lepers, often through prayer. He is the one who woke up early to pray, who went off by himself to pray. He's the one who prayed with others that the will of the Lord would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when he faced his greatest crises in this world, the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, he did so with prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer, and he calls us to be men of prayer. Prayer is our greatest work. And Paul calls us to two works of prayer in this passage. First off, he says, pray for the spread of the gospel. He doesn't move too far from God's word. He says, first off, cling to God's word. Cling to it. But now he is saying, pray for the spread of the gospel. I mean, it's kind of amazing. In chapter one, or rather in book one, he likened the proclamation of the gospel to kind of this blast of thunder, this sound that just goes forth. But here he personifies the proclamation of the gospel. And he says the gospel proclamation is like a runner in a marathon, which is, I think, pretty relevant. Who many, how many people in here did the St. Jude Classic recently? Anybody? <laughs> me neither. I only run when people chase me. You know what I mean? I'm a donut guy. I'm not a runner. All right, so this metaphor might, might go over our heads. But this is what Paul says. Paul says the proclamation of the gospel, is, it's like a, it's the runner who's won the race. He says, whatever you pray for, <laughs> whatever you pray for reveals your priorities. He says, make this your priority. Make this your priority. That the gospel would run and that it would run fast. And wherever it ran to throughout the Roman Empire, in America, in East Memphis, at your place of business, on your neighborhood, in your homes, wherever it runs, that it would receive its due honor, that it would be received well just like you received it well. That's what he says, pray for it. I find that remarkable. Of all the things that he just said, of all the things that he personally has experienced, he says, yes, sure, pray for everything. Pray for, pray for all things, but make sure you pray for this. Pray for the spread of the gospel. And I wonder if that's what we pray for when we go to bed at nights or when we wake up in the morning, when we leave here today, will we be praying for the spread of the gospel, seeking first his kingdom? He says, pray for that. Secondly, he says, pray for the messengers of the gospel. Verse two, this is a personal prayer that Paul makes. He says, pray for our deliverance from wicked and evil men. 
Most scholars seem to think that he's talking about the Judaizers that he was currently facing in Corinth. But this is really a prayer for all Christians to make, right? Because as Christians, we're all proclamators of the gospel. Now, find this interesting. This prayer was not made so that he simply would be safe physically. He wasn't praying, oh, please pray for my deliverance because I don't want to get hurt. Please pray for my deliverance because I don't want to die. That's not why he prayed this. He prayed it so that the word might go forth. That was his prayer. And any missionary you meet, that is their prayer. Pray for endurance. Pray for belief that I might proclaim the gospel. Don't pray for my safety. That would be nice, but don't pray for that. Pray, pray that the gospel might go forth. And brothers, I wonder if that's our prayer. That come death or life, the gospel might go forth from us. So there might be other people on that great day singing joy to the world. There's a few things before we close out that I just made note of Paul's prayer here. First off, he reminds us of how urgent prayer is. Remember, he's been talking about this great spiritual battle, the Antichrist, this great rebellion, persecution. But he says, church, your greatest weapon, your greatest tool in the arsenal, your greatest arrow in the quiver is prayer. Pray. Be a people of prayer. And when you do pray, pray for the advancement of the gospel. The other thing that it, I, I feel like Paul is making plain here is that our confidence should never be in the one praying. Some of us say, I'm not a good prayer, and that might be true. There's other people who are more eloquent, but that doesn't matter because our confidence is not in the one who is praying. Our confidence is always in the one who is being prayed to. What does Paul say here? Just smack dab in the middle of all of these prayers. It's like a random phrase. He says, the Lord is faithful. Just so he would remind us, hey, the one you're praying to, he's the faithful one. The one behind the preaching. The one behind the hearing. The one behind the praying. The one behind the blessing. Is the same one, verses 4 and 5, who will never let his church or his word fail. We might be faithless. This world certainly is faithless. But our God is always faithful to his promises. So Paul says pray, not because prayer somehow changes God's mind. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is a gift that God gives us, first off, that we might have communion with him. Secondly, it's a prayer, is a gift in which we're able to experience and demonstrate our utter dependence upon him for all things. It's a gift that God gives us that our will might be shaped to his will. That as long as you pray and the more that you pray, you begin praying the things that God wants you to pray for. Primarily the Lord's Prayer, which is pretty, pretty similar to this prayer that Paul has for us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We also experience the blessing and the dignity of causality that for some reason God ordained our prayers to be the means through which he accomplishes his will on earth. And if you're not going to pray, he's going to raise someone else up that will pray. But he's given his church that dignity of using our prayers to accomplish his purpose in this world. And it's through this gift of prayer, too, that we're reminded time and time again that he is always faithful to his people and to his promises. In fact, John Stott closes out his commentary by saying, it's only because God is faithful to his people and to his promise that gives us the urgency to pray in the first place. Pray 
and cling fastly and tightly to the Word of God. I did a funeral for a loved one uh, two weeks ago. And preparing for that um, funeral, and preparing for that, I was reminded of a story of a man named John Wanamaker, who at the turn of the 19th century was considered the uh, world's greatest businessman. He was the father of modern advertising. Um, his uh, department store empire stretched from Philadelphia to Paris. I mean, the guy was a billionaire. He had every, I mean, he was just a brilliant investor. Near the end of his life, a uh, reporter came to him and said, Mr. Wanamaker, what is the greatest investment you ever made? Without hesitation, he said, I'll give you two. God's word and my faith in the Lord Jesus. And I really feel that's what Paul is impressing upon us in this passage. Brothers, as we wait for that second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest investment that you could ever make is his word and prayer. Because those are the two pillars of Christian stability. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the gospel which tells us that you chose us before the foundation of the world to have life in your Son, that we might be with you forever and ever in glory. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe in that all the more deeply, to live boldly for your glory in this world, that others might be able to sing joy to the world on that great day to come. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.